Podo. You're listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is generously sponsored by Boardwave, an exclusive European networking community for software CEOs. Boardwave is a passionate supporter of Cure Parkinson's. For more details on the charity's progress around research and its fundraising, please visit cureparkinsons.org.uk. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Rory Kathleen-Jones and the Movers and Shakers are back in the Notting Hill pub where we meet regularly for a drink and a moan and where we hatched the plan for this incredibly successful podcast. So who have we got here today? I'm Jeremy Paxman. I'm Gillian Lacey-Solomar. Mark Mardell. Paul Mayhew-Archer. Nicholas Mostyn. What a collection. Before we get going, whose round is it? Yours. It's always, it's always, <laughs> it's yours. always his. Complete, completely as expected. Uh, Parkinson's such a great excuse for not staggering to the bar. Uh, <laughs> this week we're going to plunge, though, into the fascinating subject of DBS, deep brain stimulation, the one treatment for Parkinson's which really seems to work. Luckily, we've got an expert on the team who knows all about it, Gillian Lacey Solomar. Gillian, I know you've brought along somebody, a learned doctor, who can answer all our questions, but first of all, let us grill you. What is DBS and why did you decide to have it? Well, I feel slightly awkward talking about this given that the World Authority is sitting right next to me, but we'll leave that for a second. Let me tell you from a user's point of view. So DBS, deep brain stimulation, as you say, and I had it done four years ago, almost to the day, and I had to have it done. I really did. I was in so much pain, I had no choice. And I've got a little video here, which is about 20 seconds, but I'll only play about three of it, because I think that's all Jeremy can take. Video, video's great on For, the radio. On radio, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but there yeah. are sound effects. And then maybe, Jeremy, you can describe what's going on. Well, you're lying on the bed with somebody. I hope it's yours. Oh, you did. Oh, that's horrible. That is, do we have to watch you more? No, no, that's it. But basically, yes, I am lying on the bed. Shush, shush, shut up. Um, I should say for everybody, it's a, it's a fairly horrific video. It's, I mean, Jeremy's reaction, we, I think Jeremy reacted, described that in our, our very first episode, actually. It's mm. you in terrible pain in a really bad way four years ago? Four years ago and a couple of months, yeah. Describe what that was like, what, what your symptoms were back then. Well, I had phenomenal pain. The pain is indescribable. And it's very odd because it was all concentrated in my foot. You, I wouldn't have thought a foot could have that much pain if it would be possible. But I would lie with the foot would contort because of the Parkinson's. And so all sorts of bits on the foot would pull. I don't know if it was ligaments or tendons or what, or probably the whole lot. And they were all completely in the wrong place. So that was very, very painful. And then the other thing was that my hands would not lie normally. They would be clenched so tight that the effort of that was enormous. And then the tremor was just... How would you describe that tremor? Well, it's, it's, it's odd, isn't it? Because your body doesn't shake. Spasm. Yeah. It's but your arms yeah. and legs do. Quite a few of us have a tremor, but it's, no, it doesn't, was... doesn't shake our whole body. I mean, with me, it's just the right hand. Some of us don't have a tremor at all. Your whole body is... Is it like an extreme cramp? Something. It like is that? like an extreme cramp, yeah, which yeah. goes on and on and on. And this was after taking something called apomorphine, which I was advised to take for 
the pain. So I used to have to inject that into my stomach, and this was probably about half an hour after. But how yeah. unusual is it? Because I thought, that, you know, the one good thing about Parkinson's, for me at least, is there isn't any pain associated with it. Very unusual, apparently. I shall ask the professor in a moment, but I was told initially that 5% maybe of people who have Parkinson's have pain. So that was jolly bad luck. So that you, was... you, were, you were in crisis. You didn't know what to do with yourself by the look of it. And who told you about deep brain stimulation? I'd heard about it early on, very early on, and people kept saying, oh, it's a long way down the road. And then suddenly it wasn't. I thought, if I were to have it at all, that it would be 10, 12 years down the road. And in fact, it was, I think, seven after having been diagnosed, so much earlier. And it terrified the hell out of me. It really did, you know. Eight-hour operation it was at the time. It is exactly, they go right into the middle of your brain with two electrodes. So, for example, I can't go through the security at Heathrow or anywhere else anymore because I, I get deprogrammed if I walk through that. Out of but interest, then, you have to yeah. get special permission not to be Yes, not I have a letter scanned. saying right. yes. And, and it depends That's one on... upside, I suppose. Yes, mm. maybe, except that what, they... What? In Corsica, my God. What do you mean deprogrammed? It stops working, the deprogrammed. Yes. Because, well, because there's all that magnetic stuff. Is there a chip in your head? Well, there's, yes, there's two electrodes. Well, have a feel afterwards. You can't feel where they are because they're very deep in, but they... And you've got the, the power in. pack is in, yeah. in your chest. Yeah, so I keep saying to people, I've got a... You've got, got a pacemaker. Pacemaker, I've got a battery-powered chest. <clears throat> yes, I've got a battery-powered chest there. Gosh. But, but I'm not going to let you guys touch. <laughs> uh, just above my breast, and then in the head I've got these two electrodes. And is it working permanently? Is it permanently sending these signals to your brain, or well, do you have to make it do something? And No, it's doing it permanently, but you're, and you're not supposed to switch it off, because if you switch it off, then you revert back. But and I'm going to say this very, very quietly, so that the professor's right next to me doesn't hear... I switch it off quite a lot. Right, okay. Because this is, if we get onto pros and cons, but the, because you can't swim with the bloody thing on. And I very nearly drowned despite being quite a strong swimmer because nobody told me that. That's my one gripe, which I shall complain about. But that was quite serious, actually, that uh, you can't coordinate movement anymore. Okay, you've right. hinted I have. At, what, at your special guest. Um, so what we're going to do is hand over for a little while to you and your special guest, although we, we will reserve the right to intervene. So Gillian, tell us who your Exercise special guest is. Exercise the right to intervene. Exercise <laughs> the right to intervene. Right. Well, my special guest is the only man who's ever been inside my head. <laughs> so I couldn't resist that. That was why I wanted to do this whole DBS piece for no other reason than that line. You'll be putting Paul out of work now. <laughs> <laughs> He's laughing. There we are who is Professor Ludwig Zrinzo, who, can I call you Ludwig? As long as I can call you Gillian. <laughs> no, call me Professor, even though I'm not. <laughs> so he's a consultant neurosurgeon at the National Hospital for Neurology in Neurosurgery. He has over 300 papers written and is, I think it's fair to say, the world authority on DBS. So thrilled to bits that you're here and doubly, trebly thrilled that you were my surgeon. Thank you for that. Thanks for the invitation. It was a miracle what you did to me. I went in like that, pretty much screaming my head off and came out. The fists had unfurled, the pain had gone. When the machine was switched on, it was a miracle. Tell us, how does this miracle work? Well, first of all, it's something better than a miracle. It's science. <laughs> Parkinson's disease is a very variable disease and it affects people in very different ways. But what we do know is that what is happening is that nerve cells are dying because of a problem at the molecular level. And when those nerve cells die, the brain doesn't work the way that it should work. 
and the brain starts sending abnormal signals to the body, and they can result in, in different effects. And what you were describing earlier, that very painful cramp, the doctors have a, a technical term for it, we call it dystonia, which means the muscles have too much tone. There's too much pulling in the muscles. And that can be extremely painful. And when you have small muscles of the foot that are going into spasm, it can cause exquisite pain. And although you're quite right, a minority of patients who suffer from Parkinson's disease suffer from terrible pain, it's actually much commoner than you think. So my 5% wasn't correct. So many people can actually present with low back pain, for example. That can be one of the initial symptoms, which is often missed by doctors because low back pain is so very common. And that is the Parkinson's. It's not us just being unable to stand up no, or whatever it, it, in a secondary. It's the, it's the problem with the muscle tone. It's the problem with aches and pains that you get as a result. There are many more effects. So constipation is another problem that very early affects mm. us before we get tremors or cramps in the muscles. But again, because it's such a common symptom, many people don't pick it up as an early sign of Parkinsonism. Loss of smell can happen. So people have less smell than they normally do, but because it goes away very slowly, it's something that you don't pick up on or you don't observe until you look back and say, oh yes, things don't taste the way they used to because the flavor of the food is, is much less. The death of these cells inside the brain can also cause problems with low mood, with depression. Mm. So depression is much commoner in, in people who suffer from Parkinson's than in the general population. So although we traditionally think of as someone who suffers from Parkinson's disease of having tremor and slowness, there's a whole mountain of other symptoms that can be there that can negatively affect your quality of life that are often ignored by people because they come on very slowly. And it's only quite recently in the last 10 years or so that doctors have become very aware that it's not just your movements, but all these other symptoms that can detract from quality of life. And we're trying to address those symptoms to a greater degree, together with the whole team of people, starting from the person who suffers from Parkinson's themselves. You call me the world's expert. Actually, the world expert is you, because you are the one who have lived with it. And you are the one whom Parkinson's disease has affected in that particular way. And we sit around a table here with a number of people who suffer from Parkinson's disease, and everyone has a slightly different flavor to how it's affecting their Not life. Not even slightly different. I mean, when we go around in a moment, you'll hear everybody has very, very different symptoms. Absolutely. Part of what we do as doctors is learn from you, learn from the individual and from the family about how your symptoms affect your everyday life. And then we come together with a plan to try and see how we can optimize that, how we can improve that. Because unfortunately, we don't have a cure yet. We're working towards that. There's a lot of money being pumped into research at the genetic level, at the molecular level, at the cellular level, because that's where the true answers lie. But until such time as we have a cure, we need to help patients by using medication, using adaptations to everyday life, to optimizing function by encouraging exercise and dance and speech therapy. But sometimes when the symptoms don't respond to medication and to all these other conservative management ideas, then surgery is the right way forward. And deep brain stimulation is one of the most successful surgical tools that we have. It's not for everybody. And we have to ensure that we tailor our approach to helping people with Parkinson's according to what they need. But how do you choose who it's available to? I mean, such a long waiting list now, isn't there? Did you say two or three years, something like that? Selecting someone for surgery is a large part of what we do as neurosurgeons, selecting the right patients. Mm. 
is a very important part. It's almost more important than the surgery itself. So of course, doing a safe and accurate surgical operation is extremely important, but doing that operation on the wrong person would be a tragedy. So really selecting the right person is key. And I don't think I can tell you in the limits of a podcast, I'd love to be able to teach my students so quickly as to how to select the right patients. But broadly speaking, if your quality of life is not the way you'd like it to be on medication alone, then you deserve to have a surgical opinion. And the surgeons may decide that's not for you, but that's useful information because then you can put that to one side and pursue other courses of action. Mm. Everybody's quality of life is crap. And so, we're all taking medication for it. Well, well we're uh, not uh, all is that everybody or everybody with Parkinson's? No, <laughs> everybody with Parkinson's. Do you have to want to have DBS? Do you have to really want to have it? Because I think we'll get into the details with you of the operation in a minute. But yeah. for a lot of us, I have to say for me, it yeah. sounds kind of a radical thing. And Scary. My, my Parkinson's, Ooh. be honest, yeah. I know everyone's is different, doesn't feel bad enough. So, well, so here we have a great example. We've just told us that you feel that your life is very full. You feel that you're very accomplished. You feel that you're not ready for surgery. And but, but absolutely you're early right. On your journey, as ha- they say, boy, aren't you? I'm yeah, sort of but, much but, further along at so, 13 years. But what I would suggest is that if you have a surgical opinion, you can then actually dispel the myths that are going around about how dangerous surgery mm. might be. And you're more prepared. You might be able to say, well, listen, surgery is not for me now, but if things get worse, I know that that's available and on the shelf for me. And that's quite a reassuring thing to know. Let me re- reveal something. I had my consultation, my an- annual consultation with my consultant the other, the other day, and I was slightly shocked when he actually said the words DBS. Right. I sort of expressed the thought that I wasn't, didn't think I was ready for it. And he, what he said was, well, there's such a long waiting list that it's worth getting in early because so, you can always think about it. Sadly, the waiting list has risen. We have several challenges in this country, COVID being one of them, because all elective surgery ground to a halt. And this is considered elective surgery. We've had under-resourcing of the healthcare system for over a decade. And therefore, access to deep brain stimulation is much less than I'd like it to be. I'll say it again, I don't think when you see a surgeon, you have to have surgery. I think seeing a surgeon is all about learning about whether surgery is the right thing for you, what it might help, what it will not help, and being in a position of empowerment. You can empower individuals to come to a rational decision as to whether this is something they may want to consider now or later. But unless you meet somebody who can give you that information, and you can't get it off the internet because you need to tailor it to the individual. So I think access to having a discussion with a surgical team is really quite important. How does it work? Back to basics, yes, exactly. How How does does it it work? So we talked briefly about the fact that when Parkinson's affects those cells in the brain, you have death of specific cells within the brain. And because of that, you get abnormal signals reverberating in circuits within the brain. And what we do with deep brain stimulation is we block those reverberating signals to stop the brain from sending those messages that cause tremor, that cause dystonia, that cause stiffness. So a good way of thinking about it is you're all radio aficionados here. If you've got a radio channel that's broadcasting stuff you don't want to hear, you can block it out with white noise and then nobody will hear that broadcast anymore. So if the brain's sending an abnormal or bad message, 
down to the muscles, you can block that by turning on a high-frequency electrical current that blocks that specific I circuit. See. You're like the without... Soviet Union jamming Western broadcast in the Cold War. I'd prefer a different country <laughs> than the Soviet Union, given the current situation, but you've got it. Jonathan <laughs> Swift said it was a brave man who first ate an oyster. It must have been a very brave person who first went under this. There was a very brave, brave person, a very brave group of doctors, and I'm very fortunate to work with the neurologist who pioneered deep brain stimulation in Grenoble, and she switched on the device, and the very first patient who underwent STM, DBS back in the late 80s. Can I ask, Julian? Yeah, yeah, of um, You and your family, did you discuss this, and what, were you all agreed that you should have this done? Yes, very much so. Every step of the way was discussed. And by pure coincidence, we had a lady who we knew very well, who was renting a house nearby, who was in the operation and who rang my husband about every hour to say how it was going, which was, I don't know if you were aware of this at all. And she was running, operating one of the machines. So they knew all the way through how it was going, which was incredible. I remember waking up. So I think it was eight hours. Is that about right at the time? I mean, I know it's shorter now. So we've, we've definitely shortened the surgical procedure. The procedure actually only takes one and a half, two hours now. What? But there's a lot of preparatory work before and after. So again, we're very... When the patient's very, asleep. When the patient's asleep. So right. we, we, we get a very detailed brain scan because seeing the target you're trying to hit actually helps when you're trying to hit it, <laughs> funnily <laughs> enough. And then the operation is actually a very short operation now. It can be done in an hour and a half. But then we get another brain scan afterwards to make sure the electrodes are exactly where we want them are to be. Are you fiddling around with the electrodes, pushing them in and pulling them out and just sort of... Well, we try and keep the fiddle to a minimum. <laughs> what part of the brain does it go into? So there's different targets within the brain. So the commonest part of the brain is a tiny little cluster of cells about 8 to 10 centimetres deep called the subthalamic nucleus. It's about as big as a small almond. That's the most popular target. What happens in that part of the brain? There's lots of functions that go through that part of the brain. Circuits that subserve movement, circuits that subserve emotion, and circuits that subserve thought. So you've got to be very particular in targeting those circuits that subserve movement, because otherwise you can have negative effects on, for example, your mood, and you can cause low mood or things like that. So being accurate is extremely important. Ludwig, I just please in, a question here. When you did your first one, were yes. you incredibly nervous? And did the patient know that it was your first go? <laughs> what a lovely question. So, so I was very fortunate. I had a mentor called Professor Harris, who was actually mentored by one of the pioneers in this sort of surgery. And the way that medicine works is that you are mentored for many, many years. You study at university for five or six years, and then you go through, for neurosurgery, it's 12 years of mentorship. So I'd just like the audience to realize that when you talk about a junior doctor these days, there could be someone in their late 30s who has a decade or almost two decades studying medicine and science. And therefore, you never do the first surgery on your own. You're guided through bits and you're supervised until finally you start supervising others. And I'm at that stage in my career where I supervise and were you, many others. Were you nervous? Was there a feeling of huge achievement when you actually got your first Oh, there's patient? always a, that's the beauty about studying medicine. It's a grueling job, but you've always learned something new and you, you always come back feeling rewarded. Of course, there are downsides to a career in medicine, but yes, of course, there's a sense of achievement whenever you do something new. And I still haven't stopped doing anything new. I use the same techniques to operate on new indications or to do different types of, of procedures. 
we're very tightly knit internationally. So for example, before I do a new procedure now, even though I'm 50, I'll go and visit my colleague in Harvard who's done it before and I learn something from him. And then somebody from Chicago will come to London and learn something from me. So we're very tightly knit that way. How, how often does it not work? How often does it not work? Yeah. So it depends what you mean by work, because I think there is the expectation of the person undergoing the surgery and the realistic chance of helping. Mm. And sometimes if expectations are unrealistic, then I would counsel someone not to undergo surgery. There's no point me doing surgery because I think it's going to help you if actually your expectations of what we're doing is, is unrealistic. So you could come to me and say, well, listen, I'm in terrible pain. What do you think my chances are of getting better? If the pain is from the cramp, I'm going to tell you, well, actually, your chances are really very, very, very good. If you come to me and your balance is terrible and you're falling, even when medication is working well, and you come to me and ask me, is surgery going to help? I'm going to tell you, well, actually, no. Surgery is not going to improve your balance if your balance is still poor when you're on medication. That's you out then, Jeremy. So this, yeah. is, this is how I try to unpack it for you. It's, yeah. It's actually a very successful procedure when you select the right patient. Is it any it. good for freezing, people with freezing? So if your freezing improves with medication, even yeah. if it improves for a short period of time with medication, yeah. then we can help you. Ah, why does it depend so on medication? That's a very good question. We don't have the answer. You, you guys are really good at asking good <laughs> questions. <laughs> so we don't have all the answers. Let's take it back a notch. What is science? Science mm. is all about trying to predict what's going to happen. And the stronger the prediction, the better the science, or rather the other way around. The better the science, the stronger the prediction. And there are certain things we can make very strong predictions about and things that we are less sure about. Mm. And that's what we're trying to communicate with people before they undergo surgery, because mm. they need to be informed before they take such a big decision. One of the predictive tests we do is, and Gillian will remember this, is we take you off all your Parkinsonian medication and, and yeah. we see how bad your symptoms are <laughs> off medication. Oh, we want to go there. And then we put your medication, we give you an optimal dose of medication, we see how good your symptoms are on medication. And if that change is very big, then the chances of surgery helping you is actually really good. Yeah. Now, of course, there's black and white. There are some patients who, you know, this really isn't for you. The risks of surgery, however small, just don't warrant the tiny benefit we'll think you'll get. There are some people who will do brilliantly well, and there's a whole shade of gray in between. And deciding whether to go ahead in that shade of gray is something that you need to be open and honest about with both the person in front of you and the family. That my my wife is very, I'm on the list, possibly to have it next year. My wife is very worried, well, I'm sort of worried as well because a friend of ours had it and then had a stroke a few days later and died. I'm so sorry to hear that. What I can say is that we've operated on more than 2,000 patients at Queen Square without a single stroke or death. Mm. That doesn't mean it can't happen. Uh, is the electrical signal that's supplied pre-programmed or is it patient no, election? No, no. You can't see what, what it on the radio, oh, which I, is a... I thought well, that was your phone. That's what most people think. It looks like a phone. Well, it looks like an a old... remote control, and it is a remote control. If I get dull, you can switch me off. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> It says here, look, I'll switch on. on. Oi. <laughs> 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 Fell for that one, yeah. didn't I? Can you see that says stimulation on, on it. Am I allowed to switch this off? If I switch this your, off, your remote. you'll see my tremor will come back. Not immediately, but it will start coming back. 
I've spoken to other people who have this and asked them if they've switched it off. And there are people who look at me as a oh moron and say, never, ever would I dream of switching it off. If that tremor's very strong, Jeremy, you're in the firing line. Yes. No, well, no, it doesn't yeah. come back immediately. So if I switch this off now, Terrible. I will be able to swim, which I can't with it on. There we are, off. Not in the pub you won't be able to. <laughs> Maybe not in the pub. What they do is they program it with just a little tiny computer, which they have next to you. The DBS nurses do this, who are brilliant. And what happens is they program this. I mean, it's the most weird feeling. You've had the operation, you sit down, and they are literally in your head. Suddenly your arm starts flying around, and then they press a few buttons and it calms down. And then it goes into your head, and you have this tremendous feeling that your head's going to explode. And then they take it down again, and they mess around until they've got exactly the right combination. So they can actually control your arms. They can. Around. I mean, yes, they can control. It is a, you like know, a remote control. I mean, obviously, we're interested in Parkinson's. We're talking about Parkinson's. Does it have lots of other applications for other conditions and illnesses? Eighty percent of the DBS procedures performed worldwide are for Parkinson's, but we use it for different types of movement disorder conditions. Another associated condition is called dystonia. So you can get the symptom of dystonia in Parkinson's, but you can get isolated dystonia for many other reasons. You can get tremor due to other causes. There's something called essential tremor or familial tremor that we can treat with deep brain stimulation. Something that I'm very interested in in my research is involved is to see whether you can use this to help patients with mental disorders. So we've got what is called scientific class one evidence now that we can help patients with severe refractory obsessional compulsive disorder or OCD. Now, I'm not talking garden variety OCD. I'm talking OCD that takes up 10 to 12 hours of your day that ruins your life, that drives some people to suicide. But when it's that bad, we have a good idea of which circuits are driving those obsessive thoughts and driving the anxiety behind those obsessive thoughts. And we have class one evidence to show that this can be successful. Can I ask, is DBS, I mean, is it now very sophisticated or is there a long way to go? Are there other things that you think you can do with it? So deep brain stimulation has improved over the years. So the devices can now not just stimulate the brain, but actually record from the brain. And we are trying to analyze those abnormal signals. And instead of us having to try to program in a random fashion, as we've done with Jillian, People are working on whether we can have algorithms that can automatically detect the abnormal signals and automatically suppress them. So, so adjust, that's called adjust, to adjust automatically. So we call that a closed-loop circuit. That so that was, yeah. that's a very important that's, angle of mm -hmm. research that we're involved with. And are you, uh, when you're talking about sorry, which areas of the brain it goes into, that's yeah. critical, isn't it? Because Absolutely. I felt that when it's been moved into what they call the limbic bit of the brain, that the actual electricity suddenly I just feel really depressed. You know, this black cloud comes down and then it's gone in an hour. But in that hour, you know, I become somebody terrifying and I don't know what to do about that. It's really, really scary. So, so I think you press on an important point here. Every therapy that we have has beneficial effects and potential mm. side effects. Mm. And it's really important to understand these to avoid them. And that's true of medication. So for example, one of the side effects, which is common with Rupinirol, which is a, a very important medication that we which use. I'm on that. Yeah. I'm on that. So some people get gambling. And yeah. I've, I've known patients who have lost hundreds of thousands of pounds while they were on Rupinirol mm. because of a side effect of how it affected their behavior. Problems with hypersexuality can ruin marriages, unless you explain that there can be side effects, unless you're aware of them. 
you will cause problems. And you mentioned the fact that coordination isn't perfect. Mm. I mentioned that I, I operate in Malta, and therefore I tell every single patient in Malta that they shouldn't go swimming alone until they've tested that everything's okay. We must make sure we do that in England as well now, yes. because Definitely. Malta's surrounded by water, but clearly people also go swimming here too. Can I just it's ask how long this lasts? Is this a permanent right. solution, or do you have to come back for more? Or does it eventually wear off? Yes. As you know, Parkinson's is a degenerative condition and the cell death slowly accumulates, sadly. When you take medication for the first time, it can be a massive release and it can feel like you're reborn. Unfortunately, as the years go by, the effects aren't so good, but that doesn't stop you from taking the medication because things would be a lot worse if you had stopped taking the medication. The same is true with deep brain stimulation. What it essentially does is it helps with the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but it does not stop the progression of the disease. Still, it works until you die. And if you were to turn it off, your symptoms would be a lot worse. So it is a lifelong therapy, but how long it lasts is a bit of a difficult question to answer because it's not a disease-modifying treatment. It's a symptomatic treatment. I live for the day when I don't have to do deep brain stimulation anymore because what we really need is a disease-modifying treatment that prevents further degeneration so that people don't need deep brain stimulation. Can I ask another question because I'm on the list? Are we awake <laughs> or asleep when you do this operation? So I don't know which list you're on. <laughs> All of my research when I was uh, a younger neurosurgeon was about converting the surgery from an awake operation to an asleep operation. Right. And what we found through the research that I did is that we could do the surgery much quicker, much safer, <laughs> and get asleep. better effects if they're asleep. And therefore, that's what we do. In the old days, we were awake so we could say, oh, yes, you're in the spot now. So we use MRI to confirm that we're in the right spot. And that's actually a better predictive How do you do value. that? What are you actually looking at? What do you So see? we're actually looking at the structure within the brain that's misbehaving and then confirming that we've reached that spot with this post-operative scan. Will Gillian have to go and have it again? I, oh, I certainly I? hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so there are very, very rare instances when symptoms develop to the point where a similar operation in a different circuit might help. But of, the, of every 200 procedures I perform for Parkinson's, maybe one of them may come back for a different type of DBS operation. That is fascinating. And I think a lot of people around this table will be queuing up and joining that list of yours. Tell me one thing which has only marginally to do with this. How did you get into this whole neurosurgery thing? Because your story, I've heard it from so many other people, but not from you. And I wonder whether it's apocryphal. Some link with terrorism? My father was a neurosurgeon and my mother was a neuroradiologist. So they worked very much as a team. Well, they still are, but they're retired. My father was Malta's first neurosurgeon. When I was growing up, I vowed I'd never become a doctor or a neurosurgeon because he was the only neurosurgeon on the island and I never, ever saw him. He was on call 365 days a year, 24 hours, round the clock, couldn't go on holiday. So I said, that's something I'll never, ever, ever do. You probably remember there was an Egypt Air plane that was forced onto the tarmac in Malta in the 80s and the terrorists were taking passengers out, shooting them in the head and throwing them on the tarmac every hour, demanding for fuel so they could take off again. And I was tender age of 14 or 15, and I just couldn't believe that somebody would take another human being in cold blood and shoot them in the head. My father disappeared for three days and came back with a, a bit of stubble, having operated on five of these patients and saved the lives of three of them after they'd been shot in the head. And it dawned on me that actually he was doing something fairly useful when he wasn't at home with his family. 
And much to my father's chagrin and disappointment, I decided to become a neurosurgeon. <laughs> well, we're all very glad. <laughs> we're very great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Before we finish, let's just go around the table and see how we all feel having heard Gillian's story and having heard from the distinguished prof about whether we fancy it or not. Jeremy, what's your thinking on this? Well, I'm old, so everybody looks young to me, but you look a bit, you look an enterprising young man. And I didn't want to have it because I did. I thought, I'm not going to have some clown going and sticking <laughs> electrodes in my brain. I wouldn't want a clown either. <laughs> no, good. I trust you. But have you changed your mind then? I have changed my mind, yes. Interesting. What about you, Judge? I, I remain fearful. The thought of people drilling into my skull and Some poking around in my brain. Drilling into your skull. I know you. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, it sounds like you're, you're keen. I, I am keen, and particularly because one of the things Gillian said was that she got these cramps mm. in her foot. I get cramps in my foot. Uh-huh. And at the moment, it's in bed, and then if I manage to stand up and put weight on my foot, the, the cramp goes. But if there should come a time when the cramp doesn't go and it becomes more painful, I will need this operation even more because I hadn't realised that that could Mm. be associated with Parkinson's. So the good news is that that is the most likely symptom to improve. That's fantastic. Mark, Mark Mardell. Well, I think I'm at too early a stage to consider it yet, but I'm intellectually fascinated by the idea. And the one thing I've really learned, apart from, well, a lot, learned a lot from the professor, but also this cramp, I get that in my foot only maybe once every two months or something. I had that ages and ages ago, long before I was diagnosed, and I was told to roll, it, roll my foot on an iced bottle of water, which does relieve it. Well, I came into this session very, very hostile to the idea, thinking I'm nowhere near needing it, and I still don't think I'm that near needing it. But what you said about bad back, I've had a crippling bad back a year ago, which laid me out for about six weeks. I get that cramp. I've had that for years. Never realised it might be a symptom of Parkinson's, you know, suddenly having to stand up. Does it improve with medication? I don't think it does. And then it might not be your Parkinson's. Yeah. Don't forget, it might be just bad good at... back is a common thing outside of Parkinson's exactly. too. I mean, this is the trouble with Parkinson's, isn't it? My wife said the other yesterday, well, your ears are sticking out more. Is that Parkinson's? <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Movers and Shakers with me, Rory Kathleen-Jones, and my friends Gillian Lacey-Solomar, Mark Mardell, Paul Mayhew-Archer, Nicholas Mostyn and Jeremy Paxman. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Poddo. Our theme music is by Alex Stobbs and cover artwork by Till Lukat. Thanks again to Boardwave for their support. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app and do rate and review if you've enjoyed the show. We're also on Twitter at Movers and Six. That's Movers and the number six. So please share the show there and email any thoughts or questions to feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. See you next week. <laughs>